Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yenar Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Tarek Yunus, who is a senior lecturer in psychology at Middlesex University, as well as the author of The Muslim State and Mind, Psychology in Times of Islamophobia. Thanks for joining us, Tarek. Thank you so much for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? Uh, yeah, sure. So personally, I'm, I, my background is a little bit complicated. I'm, I'm Egyptian, but I was born in Canada. That explains my accent. Many people here in the UK immediately assume I'm American, but that's blasphemy these days to call <laughs> A Canadian American. So I was, yeah, I was born in Canada, but I was raised in Berlin, in Germany. And then I went back to Montreal, the city where I was born, to do my studies. My family is a little bit all over the place, but now I am living here in London and I've been living here for the last seven years in the UK. We don't really have any plans to leave London, despite the fact that Britain is kind of slowly sinking into the ocean. So I think we'll kind of just weather it out and see what happens. But uh, yeah, that's kind of my personal background in terms of my uh, professional background. You mentioned that I'm a senior lecturer at Middlesex University, which is true. Although I'm actually only working there now part-time. My other part-time is working as racial justice researcher at this really great organization called Healing Justice London. We're looking at processes of marginalization and it's um organization that's dedicated to transformative healing justice. Tarek, I'll, we'll start off with a really easy one. There's quite a lot of funding going into counter-extremism, so this should be easy to answer. What is extremism? What is extremism? So that's obviously the golden question that's ironically not on me to answer. My interest in extremism isn't really about how I define extremism, but rather how Various nation states have defined extremism for their own purposes. We'll find that extremism is defined in many different ways. And while obviously most generically in the beginning of the war on terror, it was obviously centered very much on expressions of Muslimness that many countries across the global north and Australia and other places didn't like to hear. I think often now in the evolution of the war on terror, extremism has come to define anything that's sort of what's considered sort of illiberal and on the fringes of society, which what we've seen could be anything that they would like. I mean, here in the UK, they'll say anything that's sort of anti-democratic or intolerant, but in reality kind of is, again, really whatever at uh, any country 
wants it to be. For my personal interest in extremism, I think, isn't necessarily it's whatever definition they're trying, anyone is trying to report that it is, but rather my interest in extremism comes in its colorblindness. So what began as something that focused counter-extremism, having focused particularly on Muslims, became something that's more or less colorblind to give, to give it this liberal veneer of acceptability that it applies equally across the population, despite what we're seeing is a growing trend towards normalization of all-right politics, xenophobia, racism, etc. A lot of these things obviously don't end up being caught within the web of counter-extremism. One major focus of the book, obviously, is this thing called the Muslim mind, which apparently presents particular problems to governments in the global north. You develop a kind of a thesis about the relationship between psychological understandings and the role of politics. Can you explain what it is that you find troubling about this process of psychologization that this process that's taking place that locates whatever problems are assumed to exist inside the minds of this thing called the Muslim? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's also kind of the, that was like the impetus behind me wanting to write this book. So when I speak, the whole, I think the idea of psychologization, I should just preface this by saying it's nothing new. It's actually also nothing new in terms of like counter-terrorism, but counter-insurgency. If we think about sort of colonial projects that have long looked at colonial subjects in terms of that sense of revolt that developed among colonized populations, Hans van and others have looked at this. And so empires have been very quick to psychologize that anger, that frustration of of actually being colonial subjects as being one that belongs cities to the minds of those people, right? Like there are people who have difficulties in controlling their anger, their emotional configuration, their cognitive configuration is all sort of messed up. So it's a way of saying, well, actually, the problem isn't really us. Like it's not the colonial project. It's actually them. It's in their minds, right? So there, there's a long sort of trajectory that this is building on. So given that history, that's something that what we're seeing in our current time, why psychologization is so important for me. I think, let me just add another point, which is I think there's a lot of sort of been discussions around the politics of like Muslims and Islamophobia, right? So this is something that many people have been writing upon. Yes, Morsi, for example, which I think you both know, have written about this for a very long time. But there's also the politics of psychology. I think people tend to think of the side disciplines, which I include in psychology, psychiatry, as these as these apolitical phenomena, right? Like that they're somehow devoid of any politics or any sort of yeah, sort of any sort of political uh, uh, valence in their in their work. And this is something that's been long critiqued, given our neoliberal structures and other things. That psychology plays a very obvious political role. The purpose of the book was to really just marry the two. So the politics of psychology and the politics of Muslim. So theoretically, I think it's actually the argument is really easy to explain, which is what I just said. Psychology has a very convenient way of making, of individualizing, it has this impulse to individualize issues and make it about people 
rather than structures, right? So if people are are living through a cost of living crisis and they're anxious, they're stressed because of it, there is this impulse to be like, oh, maybe everybody needs a therapist, everybody needs a mental health professional, everybody's feeling anxious and depressed, right? So there is already that impulse. It has this very, almost also very conservative, very individualizing impulse. And that impulse to try to, this impulse to localize experiences within the mind is one that's, that depoliticizes it. And this is, this is sort of the central argument that's been made towards, or a central critique that's made towards psychologization. That's the big, that's sort of the big sort of umbrella argument. The, the, the way that this applies to Muslims is actually very, very clear in counterterrorism and counter-extremism policies. So I can give maybe an example that I think will hopefully clarify. And it's an example I draw upon in my book, which is the fact that one thing we notice in counter-extremism policies that try to give the liberal veneer that it's not about Muslims or managing ideal Muslim citizenry, so to speak, is about making it, they say that it's about everybody, right? Counter-extremism is about everybody. And one of the ways they're able to do this is saying that, well, everybody can be psychologically vulnerable to ideological viruses, right? Using the sort of psychology talk, as I, as I call it, or its language is heavily emphasizing psychology. We can all, you, yourselves, me, anybody around me, we're all equally vulnerable to becoming terrorists in the future if we're psychologically vulnerable, right? And so that discourse of psychology and mental health becomes one kind of equalizing the the playing field, making it seem like we can take a public health approach to counter-extremism, to counter-terrorism, that applies to everyone equally. Even though, and this is, this is the central point here, even though the very construct of terrorism, the very construct of extremism, both in politics and policies, as well as public consciousness, is highly, highly racialized to Muslims. So, it be, this sort of psychology talk and psychologization effectively does is that it actually gives this colorblind veneer towards racist policies that are racist in, in practice. On paper, it seems like it's a question of safeguarding. It seems like it's a question of trying to help people. Look, we're trying to help everybody in the population. We're taking this public health approach that's trying to save everybody. We don't want anybody to go down the, the road of the far right. We also don't want anybody to become an Islamist. Like it's, it makes it seem like it's, it's benevolent, it's protective, but it's really just effectively colorblinding, very racist politics, which were racist from the outset and are not. It's raised the racism of the war on terror and becomes a race to And I can give some examples to this. Please do. Okay. That sounds good. So one example that I find was very interesting I'll give two examples. I mean, one example is here, the prevent policy, which for non-UK listeners is the UK. The UK has a very unique counter-extremism, counter-radicalization policy across Western uh, white majority nations insofar as it's a public duty for public institutions, be it healthcare, schools, universities, et cetera, to train their staff to have what they call due regard in identifying and reporting individuals they suspect might become terrorists in the future, or as they like to call it, vulnerable to radicalization. 
So basically, all teachers, all healthcare staff here receive training to report, identify and report individuals they suspect through their gut feelings that are be like, oh, I think this person might become is susceptible to becoming a terrorist in the future. Which I think for anyone who's not in the UK is like, whoa, that's like really problematic. And it is because many people, including UN special rapporteurs and charities, NGOs, uh, Muslim civil society, everyone has called out the racism uh, of this uh, quite extensively. My interest was looking at how psychology is sort of instrumentalized in this pursuit. And obviously, one thing that becomes very clear if you go to prevent training, and unfortunately, part of my research has to go through it many times, really to my own, to like to my own demise, because I really, really hate it every time I have to go through it, is like this heavily psychologized language. Again, it's couched in this in in this in this talk of benevolence, like, oh, look out for people who are vulnerable, someone who's sad, who's lonely, might be vulnerable to radicalization. And the example I actually like to give is in one of the trainings I went to, which was a training to train trainers to go train their own institutions, right? So the training I'm talking about right now is where everyone else in the room is supposed to go back to their respective institutions and train others in counter-extremism. And the trainer said one of the signs of vulnerability towards potential radicalization might be an adolescent, for example, who suddenly gains a lot of confidence or loses a lot of confidence. And I'm just sitting there in the room, right? And I'm just looking around. What was obviously the most ridiculous thing that anybody can say, right? Because I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, adolescence gaining or losing confidence, right? Like even just the idea is so stupid. And I tried in my research, I try to have, especially in the trainings, I try to have a fly on the wall approach. So I try to always not say anything because for me, it's interesting just to see how these ideas then sort of reverberate in the room itself and how people react to it. So no one said anything. I had to then raise my hand and I said, well, actually, what do you mean with that? Try to be as nice as possible because it was the most ridiculous thing anyone could say. I just offered to say that, hey, don't all adolescents kind of always gain and lose confidence? Like, isn't that what adolescence literally is about? And other people start nodding and agreeing. And the trainer then said, well, yeah, that's true. The whole point is to trust your gut feeling, right? So the idea that they're really trying to institutionalize and responsibilize was that you, you're responsible for that gut feeling you have that, hey, something might be wrong, right? But it's couched under this highly psychologized veneer, what it's really trying to do is responsibilize people to feel that every time they feel something is wrong, to report it to the what, what's effectively the police. And so that's one example of how this plays out. And I think, obviously, what we know about that gut feeling, I'm just going to put it out there in case listeners are aware of like long-standing research right now on Islamophobia, is that in public consciousness, extremism... And terrorism, again, is highly ra- racialized to Muslimness and signifiers of Muslimness. So we see people being referred for growing a beard, for practicing suddenly, for converting to Islam. We see all of these triggering these gut feelings all the time. In fact, I have one personal example. I didn't write about this and I didn't publish on it. I have many personal examples that I don't write and publish on, but I don't mind sharing just sort of generically like this, is that it's so racialized to, to Muslimness and so much so that I know of a case example where someone was referred to prevent for counter-extremism 
because they were coming from Syria, even though it turned out after the fact that that person wasn't even Muslim, right? So they were coming from Syria as a, as a, as an asylum seeker, but they weren't even Muslim at the end of the day, right? Like they were, so this person who was Arab was racialized Muslim. We know that's how it works. We know people are attacked on the street because they are racialized as Muslims, even though they're actually Sikh. Uh, or they could be Coptic Egyptian Christians or other things like that. So that speaks to sort of the fluidity of how racialization operates. But it's very, very revealing to that almost immediate connection between uh, the war of terror and Muslims. You're listening to Yana Pesaran on 3CR, 8.55am at 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. Or you may even be listening on the Community Radio Plus app, which you can find in all good app stores. We are currently talking to Dr. Tarek Yunus about Islamophobia counter-extremism and psychology. But we're going to take a very short break for me to try to convince you to subscribe to 3CR. Now, I don't think this is uh, that hard to sell. You're already listening to 3CR. You know that what you are listening to right now is something that you cannot find anywhere else on the airwaves. So do support independent, community-owned media, free of commercial influence, free of government bias, There are 400 volunteers here, 120 different weekly shows. We've got all of your radical radio listening covered, but we can't do it without your support. So please help us ensure the survival of the station and subscribe. It is so easy to do. 3cr.org.au slash subscribe has all of the information you might need. 0394198377 during business hours. You can call up and do it all over the phone but they do make it easy, 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Please do it. All right, let us get back to Tarek. Tarek, I was hoping to run an example of something that recently happened in Australia by you. There was a a case just a few weeks ago that emerged, uh, a judge threw out a a terrorism case that had been built up against a a 14-year-old boy. He was originally 13 when he first came to the attention of Australian authorities. He was a young autistic man. Uh, Unfortunately, instead of becoming obsessed with trains or something of that ilk, his focus was on ISIS. And it was through that that he was referred to CVE, the sort of prevent equivalent here in Victoria. At the same time as he was going through this sort of CVE program to try and divert his attention to healthier uh, pursuits, he was also being engaged by counter-terror operatives who set up online personas to engage him and gauge his uh, willingness to act out his interest in ISIS. And so this case was eventually brought against him and then thrown out on the basis that all of the work that the CVE people had potentially done to his benefit had been undone by the fact that he was being simultaneously radicalized by state agents. I was wondering if you had had a chance to look at that case and what your thoughts were on it. Yeah, yeah, I've I've looked at that case, and I think that's unfortunately, as as you're perhaps aware, that's not an isolated case. And Arun Kwanani, in his really fantastic book, for anyone who's interested, "The Muslims Are Coming," is a really fantastic book that covers sort of these yeah these police practices and strategies of entrapment. I have a number of things to say about these cases. I think let me speak with something that that comes personally from me that you we might you might not hear from elsewhere. I'm also, I'm a practicing psychologist. So I give therapy and my work 
my therapy work is exclusively dedicated to working with people who've experienced state violence, police violence, prison violence, etc. So I deal with cases like this all the time on a personal level. And I need to just simply affirm, oh, and I should mention, let me just plug in the organization that I'm working with, Maslaha. We have a project called Coming Home Project. So it was a project that we recently launched a couple of months ago, and it's to support especially racialized Muslims who've experienced this sort of police violence. Now, I think I think it's really important for me to just affirm one thing that people are not like very aware of, but I think it's, it's so important for me to underline just how violent these experiences are for individuals to engage with police in this way, right? Like the experiences of the of this youth, of for their family, knowing that the police are involved in their lives in this way is absolutely, is, is, is really just like, it's, it's, it's first shattering. When you feel like the police are after you, it almost feels like nowhere can be safe, right? It's, it's something that it's very difficult for us to qualify because often we don't really fully understand or appreciate the experience of living in a society where the security apparatus, you feel like suddenly is not working to protect you, but is actually actively working to harm you in some way, shape, or form. And that's something that we have to really underline how difficult that is. Now, in terms of entrapment, I mean, this is, a, again, something anything new. Without really speaking to the case of Thomas, who seemed like he was obviously vulnerable in in certain respects, but I think again we're, what we're seeing is how this is sort of instrumentalized in a way to, especially I think these sort of processes of entrapment is is one that is one that's highly exploited. But we're seeing that with police across across actually. Your world democracies. So police are often involved in trying to recruit individuals that they suspect, that they themselves suspect to be problematic. I think the third point I'm going to just bring up to this really quickly is actually how the, the, the entire idea of vulnerability becomes seen through a prism of risk, right? So when racialized Muslims are vulnerable in some way, shape, or form, be it like this youth, be it racialized Muslims who might be homeless. We've we've entered into this risk-based logic that is really so pervasive. As this one author, Giddens, he calls it that the future is colonized by threat and risk. Everything enters into this risk-based calculation through, especially, and that's been sort of really amplified and embedded within policies following the war on terror. And so what we're seeing is that, in fact, here in the UK, for example, one thing that Prevent ended up developing into and that's launching this year or has launched already, but now I think they become much more sensitive are these like what they're called mental health hubs or vulnerability support hubs, whereby anyone who's potentially deemed to be vulnerable to radicalization, but also has any way, like any element of like what you consider like a mental health vulnerability is being funneled into these mental health hubs which is this unprecedented marriage between policing and mental health support, where there's like this really awkward and still not well understood data sharing practice between policing security, like policing slash security and, and actually mental health, mental health professionals. And it's, it's something that I think that's like, that's the future of what we're seeing is this sort of risk-based 
assessment of people who are vulnerable. And so we know that these risk assessments for counter extremism are also now being embedded within just like mental health institutions across the UK. I know this is a logic that's being exported and being implemented everywhere, even China, by the way, just to be very clear, like in China, where the UK actually was <laughs> discussing and sort of teaching its CV policy, which is then obviously being implemented on the Uyghur population. When I was analyzing sort of China's discourse, which I highlighted in my book, you could see there's also that sort of pseudo-therapeutic people are vulnerable to uh, radicalization prophecies. So in what ways that ends up becoming something that, that the police then exploit for themselves, or as in the case of the Soviet Union, becomes a, another way of managing and, and locking them up, right? So the, the therapeutic can be something that you can exploit, but you can also use to justify like, oh, we need to get this person off the street and lock them up through maybe psychiatric sort of diagnostics. The therapeutic has, allows for many different ways to, to manage a population. And I think that the, the case with Thomas is just certainly one very glaring example. I guess in the in terms of public discourse and through prevent and similar kinds of programs, as well as invoking the authority of the state as a an institution dedicated to protecting the public from threat and so on, invoking some kind of ethic of care. Also being drawn upon is the side disciplines as or their, their scientific status, the ways in which this, these understandings are presented as though they were, in a sense, subjective, neutral, and so on. I'm wondering, in, in that context, can you talk a little bit about the side disciplines themselves and their use in this context, but also in terms of conceptualising mental health? In what sense is that a particularly Western artefact? And, and yeah. what are its what are the implications of that for the I guess monitoring and control of Muslim populations in the global north? That's an excellent question. I mean, I can affirm maybe just one point almost directly off the bat without having to expand on on it too much. I mean, the side disciplines themselves are Western artifacts, right? Like, so the side disciplines in terms of their conceptualization of illness and wellness and normality and all these different things. And this is something that's sort of well understood that many different sort of groups and organizations and movements have tried to work against in terms of decolonizing psychology, but also sort of understanding the cultural dimensions, all these, all, all the sort of Eurocentricism of it all. I think there's something particular to say again about sort of the critique of the, the politics of the side disciplines that I think I'll emphasize, maybe just, I might be repeating my point from earlier, but I'll just use a different example. One thing that we found in the, in the vulnerability support hub, so the mental health hubs I was mentioning before, where anyone who's, again, potentially deemed to be radical or vulnerable to extremism, which again is very racist, right? So we're seeing referrals of people putting on headscarves, stuff like that. So though suddenly they're being referred to these mental health hubs. And when that when these mental health hubs were being trialed in the UK, the police were making reports of it. These reports, through the fantastic work of Phil Ackett at MedAct, they these reports were she they they received they received these reports through the Freedom of uh, Information request. And so we were looking at these police reports 
which was examining how the police themselves were evaluating these mental health homes. And something really, really stuck out to me when they were looking at the mental health assessments for all these people were being referred to mental health homes. Let me just footnote this. According to the police, the vast majority of people being referred to these mental health hubs are young, What because they don't categorize by religious affiliation, they categorize here by ethnicity. So they say young Asians, which essentially means they could be Pakistani, Bangladeshi, whatever. So the vast majority of people being referred to these mental health hubs, and we sort of calculate it to be, you're 20 times more likely as a young Muslim to be referred to these mental health hubs for for potential Islamicism than you are to, to be, if you are a white person, to be referred for the far right. Okay, fine. Coming back to the police report, they looked at all these mental health assessments that came out. So a lot of people were receiving mental health assessment, these mental health hubs, and they found that, okay, the vast majority of them don't have, there's no problem with them. I don't know if it's the vast majority, I can't remember, but many, a high percentage of them were sort of evaluated to not have any mental health issues. A certain percentage of them have trauma, a certain percentage of them, sexual psychotic episodes. A large percentage of them have, have emotional and behavioral dysfunction. This is something that they themselves know, that the mental health assessment ends up with them. Emotional behavioral dysfunction is not an actual category. It's just, I mean, it's not like a diagnostic category to say that this youth has problems either in their behaviors or in their emotions. And then a very small percentage of them are actually distressed. And the police themselves note, and this is really, really important to emphasize, the police themselves note that, oh, isn't it really interesting that so many of these people are being diagnosed, end up with in behavioral and uh, emotional dysfunction, and so few in distress. And it's not me making this observation, it's the police themselves. And the reason why this is so important is because the jump between distress and emotional dysfunction is actually a political one, right? When we say someone is distressed, it's for saying that we recognize if someone is, is acting out, because they're distressed. Someone is incredibly sad. Someone's incredibly angry. But we understand the cause there, right? Let's say someone's parents passed away and they're very upset by it. We understand that and we say that person's in distress. When we say someone is having, is emotionally dysregulated, we're saying that they're not acting or behaving or feeling the way that we recognize what if a person should react or feel that way in the first place, right? It's a political jump insofar as if we think about what's happening in Palestine and in the Hadza, people right now are feeling incredibly angry and upset and are displaying that anger. And it's precisely that sort of psychology talk, that psychologization that makes it about them. They are having a hard time managing their anger. They, they therefore, if they're youth in schools, and this is something that research has shown, they might be sent to these behavioral or emotional like management units to like work better on managing their anger and expressing and feeling angry. And that is the depoliticizing impulse that we're seeing towards Muslims, towards racialized minorities in general, right? This is the same sort of history that we've seen towards the black community in the United States during the civil rights movement, whereby their anger 
for its Jim Crow policies and just general obvious widespread racism is one that, oh, it belongs to you. You need to manage your anger better rather than people who, rather than us recognizing that this is actually a very distressing time. The moment they were, if they would acknowledge this, these emotion, this emotional excess, you might say, right? I'm not, I don't believe it's excess, but let's say they'll call it excess, anger, sadness, whatever it might be, to be legitimate and therefore call it distress is one that immediately does what? It immediately recognizes that there is injustice out there, that it's actually that the people in Gaza are actually experiencing genocide. Maybe, maybe that distress is actually legitimate that they're feeling. So that really speaks, I think, both to the politics of the side disciplines and what it's been long able to do for the Israelite minorities, but also particularly right now in sort of counterterrorism discourse and the war on terror, how it affects Muslims, uh, especially. You do examine, and in speaking of the political and social context in which distress is registered and understood by the state and other forces, you do examine the impact of neoliberalism and neoliberal forms of governance, which might also be expressed as austerity or in various other terms. What do you think is significant about the current moment, I guess paying particular attention to the UK, but more generally, about how this mode of governance informs understandings by the state of the Muslim mind and how to address it? Yeah, that's a great question and one where I probably can end up down a rabbit hole to go for a long time. So I think to that, the the neoliberal moment is obviously one where we're seeing intense forms of hyper-individualization, which comes sort of from deregulation and obviously just like sort of leaving and almost completely sort of chucking everything within sort of mar- market logics. And that has a very sort of individualizing component to it, right? It's one in which it's about sort of everybody has to take care of themselves. And it's it's obviously highly problematic in so far everything sort of becomes commodified and becomes a question of of yeah of value. How do we how do we view this as forms of different forms of value rather than maybe a sense of sort of ethical responsibility towards people. I think the way this speaks particularly to Muslims and the war on terror is one in which, first and foremost, if we just look at like recent austerity policy, we see that there is this shift towards the cutting of public funding, be it like, obviously things like libraries, we're seeing that just like everything sort of, all the funding sort of being cut down all over the place. And at the same time, we're seeing increased sort of funding in, in what? In, in security, counterterrorism, right? In the UK, this is like very glaring, right? So here, mental health waiting lists are incredible. And I think they're probably the same in Australia. I know they're the same actually in almost all. So I never look in Australia directly, but I would assume that's the case that Australia has a really problem, big problem with waiting lists in the, in the healthcare system because this is a problem that also extends towards like Scandinavian countries like Denmark and stuff like that, where also waiting lists are really extensive. Lo and behold, in comes in CVE and prevent and things like that. 
which are obviously hyperfunded, but also hyperfunded without any real justification of how much funding they should receive, just as sort of risk-based argumentation that, hey, hey, we should be really investing in like counter-extremism, right? And the outcome of that is actually really quite glaring, which we've been arguing for years, I'm just going to mention this, that is going to create a phenomenon, a dynamic by which people who are Let's say I'm a mental health professional. I'm concerned for somebody, right? Let's say I'm concerned for you. Okay, okay. You have a let's say you have you. I I, I want to refer you to a mental health professional. All right. But the problem is that I know in the back of my mind because of all this all this privatization and especially the sort of the cuts in public funding to mental health. You're you're going to be on a waiting list for let's say a year. So I know that's going to happen. However, I know. If I can flag that you're potentially vulnerable to radicalization, you can skip the line and sort of receive that immediate sort of support or support structures because that's that's what it's made for. Then I'll refer you, I'll refer you in this respect, right? So a lot of things within healthcare and mental health in particular, there's almost like this there's a strategizing element. We don't often see it because it happens behind, kind of happens behind the curtain. But there's a lot of strategizing towards thinking, okay, how do, what's the best way of supporting an individual? And how do we like navigate and make the right choices so the person can kind of get the support that they need? And it's not really about it being about the person, it's more about the system, right? So this is, this is how we're going to navigate the system so the person gets, and this is what we're seeing, right? So we're seeing that actually happening. I, I really want to emphasize the fact that when, when I, myself, and others were making the argument that this is happening, given the political climate, the ec- economic climate that we're in, but also the sort of shift in risk-based logics and uh, hyperfunding of like security, we were saying this is the inevitable outcome, is that people are going to start prioritizing security logics to be able to support people in some way, shape, or form. And also government funding is going to support organizations that employ security logics, et cetera. That argument, are, we've been completely dismissed in these sort of arguments until actually the person who reviewed a new a new conservative person, individual by the name of Shawcross, who's very pro-security, pro-whatever, he reviewed the prevent policy, the, CV, the UK CV policy, and he affirmed that that's actually what's happening. What's happening is that people are using prevent strategically for reasons that are not actually security related, but to actually support individuals, right? And that really speaks to the perversion of the context that we're in, because you we you couldn't understand that that's happening unless you you have your feet on in the ground to understand the sort of new liberal context that we're navigating, but also the war on terror and Islamophobia and racialization of Muslims, right? It's only by holding these two hand in hand that we can fully appreciate these emerging dynamics that are appearing in healthcare. Well, folks, that is all we have time for on the radio, but we do have some more questions with Tarek Yunus on the podcast, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran. And while you are there on the Yena Pasaran page, you could just head one page over to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe and help keep 3CR on the air 3CR provides independent, community-owned media. We are free of commercial influence. 
We are free of government bias. It is radio in your language. 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. Tarek, thanks for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, you do have a website at tarekunis.org and the book is called The Muslim State and Mind. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Andy, we'll be back next week. Until then, see you later. See you then. up this morning with the sun down shining in I found my mind in a brown paper bag within I tripped on a cloud and fell eight miles high I tore my mind on a jagged sky I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Thank you.